0: Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakota, comprising the Chiniki, Bears Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Metis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them.
1: Hello, and welcome to Tia House Talks, the Insurgent Architect's House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today, we'll present an interview with Sean King, led by Mark Herman Lynch. My name is Shazia Hafiz Ramji, and I'm a research assistant for the Tia House project at the University of Calgary. In this interview, Shun King talks about his debut novel, You Are Eating an Orange, You Are Naked. It follows a translator who lives in Toronto and frequently travels abroad with his unnamed lover. Shen King and Mark discuss diasporic subjectivity, transience, folk tales, literary tropes, self-orientalizing, and Bruce Lee. The novel takes its influence from the moody, cinematic dreams of Wong Kar-Wai's films to bars and hotel rooms in the cities of Hong Kong, Macau, and Prague, and back home in Turtle Island. Shen King has been hailed as a bold new voice in Canadian literature. Mark Herman Lynch is currently a PhD student at the University of Calgary and the president of Feeling Station Magazine. Between 2014 and 2019, he was a curator of Flywheel Reading Series, and he's also been working with the creative team at Wordsworth Youth Writing Camp for the past 10 years. He resides in Mokansas, otherwise known as Calgary, in Treaty 7 Territory, Alberta. His debut novel, Arborescent, was published by Arsenal Pulp Press in 2020. Shun King, Aaron Tang's debut novel, You Were Eating in Orange, You Were Naked, was a finalist for the 2021 Amazon Canada First Novel Award. It was long listed for CBC's Canada Reads 2021, and it was named one of the best book debuts of 2020 by the Globe and Mail. Born in Vancouver, Shun King grew up in Hong Kong. His work examines the interior lives of the transnational Asian diaspora, as Thea Lim has noted in The Nation. His writings also appeared in Prism International, the Puritan, the Shanghai Literary Review, amongst others. Shen King taught creative writing at the University of Guelph and is now the creative writing coach at Avenues, the World School in Shenzhen. We hope you enjoy this conversation between Shen King and Mark Herman Lynch. Thanks for listening.
2: Tea House Talks, my name is Mark Herman Lynch, and I'm here with Sean King, the author of You Are Eating an Orange, You Are Naked. Thank you so much for joining us on Tea House Talks. Thank you, Mark. Lovely to be here. You know, the very first thing, I talked a little bit about this in kind of our pre-interview uh, spiel, but uh, You Are Eating an Orange, You Are Naked is such a brilliant title. Uh, certainly it's it's a line from the book. And for all our writer listeners who struggle with titles, me included, how did you come to realize that these two phrases would be so, would so perfectly encapsulate the text?
3: Well, I had a couple of titles in mind. They all come from the, the chapter titles. And then um, luckily, I was writing this book when I was doing my MFA. And then um, the, my, my fiction workshop group kindly helped me vote on which one to use <laughs> it was it was i think it was a, a, a unanimous vote for your eating and word journey
2: <laughs> well it's so interesting because one it's a sentence in a phrase and yeah. two it uses the verb to be twice in two sentences right <laughs> Which you kind of are taught in like you know junior fiction classes don't use the verb to be but it it's so great because it actually talks a lot about ways of being if you think about it like to be
3: yeah yeah, and it's also it also captures I think the the narrator's kind of voice when he narrates the whole thing. It's a description of exactly how the
2: narrator kind of sees um, the other character, the other main character in the in the novel. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, and it introduces the the you right and the the second person perspective. Oh my god, it's just it's such a great title, and the interesting part about it is that it showcases the ways in which your book is about to break form too, if you think about it.
3: Yeah, 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 that's, yeah. It also kind of hits us the hints at the final chapter where the, the you continues, but you kind of change So So when it's in the title, it kind of does something similar as well. Yeah,
2: thanks for picking up on all of that. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's just like, uh, right when I saw it, I thought, oh. I don't understand why more books don't do this, why they don't have more phrases. Um, Like, they're just, it's so beautiful to kind of read. And also, even though it's very simple sentences, like it paints a picture and it's very kind of, it's very sensual immediately, right? It's interesting because you have a piece in Filling Station Magazine in which the start of it, uh, I'm just going to read a little bit of the start start of it has you with a durian fruit right and you are in a hotel i thought i wrote it down but you is it the start of it has you with a durian fruit right and you're in the hotel and you're the two things that are unusual in this hotel what for example why do you kind of gravitate towards these very stark images of person fruit person object mm,
3: yeah i think For that one in particular is, the hotel is situated in a a kind of weird place in, in Hong Kong, so it's right at the edge, it's on an island where the airport is located, and it's like separate from the rest of the city. So it's this kind of weird space where there's a lot of space and Hong Kong is supposed to be really dense. And um, the Hong Kong International Airport, however, is one of the, the the most used airports in in East Asia. So it's not at all surprising that there are like these these brutes from from other countries that are just hanging out in right. <laughs> that area. <laughs> like, right. bring them in. It's, it's cheaper to bring them in from like Thailand or Singapore than it is to buy dairy in Hong Kong. So. <laughs> So, kind of so these objects to me um, kind of work with the space in which the character um, needs to kind of are forced to, to notice because they're they're in they're, my characters are always kind of in a in the space of transit and spaces that are more, more more liminal right so, so a hotel room and a durian in this place in Hong Kong and the, the irony is that the character kind of lives there too like its apartment is just like walking distance from yeah. the from this hotel, and, and yet he's still, he's in the hotel. So it creates this, this kind of sense of frageness right at the
2: beginning of that piece. Yeah, and it's so well done. And just for the viewers or the listeners, uh, this was published in 2021, and it's a piece called In July We Are All Children. And it's a lovely, like lovely piece. It's it also talking a lot about kind of like identity. It has philosophical interludes. And has like these beautiful, stark images of these uh, transnational characters. Mm, yeah, thank you. That that piece I'm actually working
3: into my my second book. It's going to be one of the chapters. Um, the book's going to be. I think the the title right now would be Bash at Seven, and there'll be Bash Shit Seven. <laughs> Bash Shit Seven. Yes!
2: <laughs> I love that. But, but that that's the title of it for now. You yeah. <laughs> know. Wonderful. This is a little bit of a longer question, and it has more kind of like to do with craft and stuff like that. So uh, me and myself, I'm doing uh, my PhD, and I'm looking at East Asian kind of like um, literatures and uh, kind of the craft of East Asian literatures. But uh, just to kind of like ground it for the viewer and the listener, uh, there's this book called Craft in the Real World by Matthew Salasis, in which uh, he talks about the distinction between Western forms of narrative structure and eastern forms of narrative structure. So uh, the Japanese Kisho Tenkatsu, uh, or in the Mandarin, and I I don't have very little Mandarin, let's say, but Chi uh, Chong he who, sorry, Chi Chong Chuanghu, Which is the same the translation for it. Is that correct? Uh, I'm not, I, I need to double check on that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's, it's something like that. I had to kind of I had to listen to it a bunch of times. And so it, this East Asian form talks about a four-act structure rather than a three-act structure that relies less on obstacle and conflict, which would be, you know, the obstacle and conflict would be central to something like Freytag's Triangle. And instead, it relies more on a surprise or twist, leaving room for narrative, quote-unquote, digressions. Your book, You Are Eating an Orange, You Are Naked, really finds its narrative energy in the juxtapositions between various stories that the characters tell each other, right? Mm-hmm. From European to East Asian folklore, to philosophical interludes and quotations, to the criticism of Hollywood movies, to footnotes. How did you come to settle on this type of narrative style for this book?
3: Oh, yeah, that's interesting. I think the the kind of, for, the four-act structure and the kind of surprise, and even the the, the Japanese form, the Kiyo Jungetsu, is it, it has more to do with flow and how the different components work together than it does with like the structure itself. So I was, I was when I was an undergrad student, I actually studied film, and um, I learned a lot of the narrative techniques from watching like older Hong Kong movies, like Wong Kar Wai movies are clearly like an influence. There, there's, there's a little bit of like the, the Japanese form in, in terms of the, the kind of like the post-war Japanese novels have an influence on it, but also the, the same in the same period, uh, some of the films are loosely based on um, Chinese stories, short stories. And the movie *For Love* was like a short story. Um, mm-hmm. But then the cinematic techniques have a lot of like French Nouveau vague influence as well. So I all know. of those—that's where the kind of philosophy comes in, right? So or like the and the, the interludes and and like the the quotations. I, I started using after, I, I, I think the only reason why I have those is that I can't a- articulate the thoughts. I, I didn't have the skill to do that on my own. <laughs> and so, <Yeah. laughs> and, and so, and so and then I, I read some Megan Nelson, and I'm like, all oh, right, hey, I guess I could just like do what she does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and then yeah and also yeah and also Walter Benjamin talks about like how you can just like use the just cut in use a quotation break the narrative it's like okay but so so I mean as long as other people are are kind of kind of doing it using that in in an interesting way I feel like maybe that's helpful for me to tell my own story as well another reason why I think the philosophical quotes is is kind of helpful is because a lot of the stories I juxtapose with kind of a folktale, folk tales don't really they don't really have like a didactic meaning. Yeah,
1: so yeah.
3: Um, so at the same time, when I kind of contrast that with like contemporary like trans transnational like like li- the lives of these characters, there's like it's really easy to be like kind of self-orientalizing. and I think like there are moments where I feel, like maybe it, my book is a little bit guilty of that, but also back then I was trying to justify it using these kind of philosophical thoughts to um, use these folk tales, not as more than just like a like a idea of like East Asia, but also more of like a story that can help us understand the present of these characters.
2: So, so I felt like that, yeah,
3: that was one of the reasons,
2: right? <laughs> Well, it's interesting because like, I mean, isn't Arcade Projects by Walter Benjamin just a book of quotes, right? <laughs> if somebody else has already said it, why say it again? <laughs> well, it's it's also interesting. Um, yeah, the, these sort of the tales, like the stories that uh, are kind of the, the folklore. Like you, you're saying that it was, you were self-orientalizing, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, I'm very interested in that. What do you mean by that? So like there are so many like
3: I, I, I think I think a lot of folktales are used to like paint an, like an orientalized version of like what being East Asian or being Asian is so we have like over atop, top cultural elements you have like like dragons and like and like fire and stuff so I, and i think i think the folktales are really interesting but i it, it, it's it's very dangerous to play into this trope and like look this here's a here's an asian asian hominids canadian um writer who 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 has this book with a bunch of folktales in it so if i if i had just leaned into that and Use that as like a motif, or as, or as the main kind of attraction to to get my story out there. I feel like I feel like it's playing into a lot of main existing fantasies that has been established throughout the uh, history. Like kind of like it be kind of like it'll be kind of like, like like Chinatown, right? It's it's just a it's just a <laughs> dragon and gates and stuff. And right. I don't even see I would see that anywhere. <laughs> like, <I don't> know. <laughs>
2: right
3: (laughs) there are no no dragon gates in China. (laughs) so so because the so so I want to be aware of the fact that these things are sometimes also a kind of mechanism that diasporic uh, trans-Asian people um, do in in the West in a way to ground themselves. But at the same time, I I feel like there's a need to be aware of that, that this is not, this is is that, this is what we use as
2: a thing to ground ourselves, not necessarily what Asia (laughs) is. Right, right. right. It's almost like that, um, I mean, this is a little bit of a, a, An offshoot, but it's almost like the beat poets, you know, mm. kind of just being like, oh, I really like Han Shan, so now we're going to translate him, and uh, <laughs> you know, now we can understand all the kind of like the wisdom of uh, Han Shan's mm. poetry and the mountains in China and all these types of things. It's interesting because like when you're talking about the stories themselves, right? They go from the folklore, they they touch on the East European, and then they touch from the East Asian, and then they also touch in this sort of the, the strange, right, and the odd. Uh, so uh, particularly there was that one uh, story of the pig falling out of a plane and killing or crushing, killing a professor, right? Uh, and this leads the characters to kind of have, the, they have different kind of perceptions in what this means, right, for everyday life. Um, but it also comes down to this idea of the randomness of life, right? Did you think of the concepts of randomness when you were kind of creating your text and your narrative?
3: Yeah, I, I I think I definitely kind of leaned into that on um, the randomness. I have the, the two characters kind of read the folktales really differently. The, the narrator tries to find meaning where the other character, the female character, well, will respond with a more random story. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or, yep. So adding chaos to, to kind of his interpretation. Yeah. And that's, that's that's her role. Like she's the one who tells the the story with the with the pig. I think she also tells the one with the, the, the piece of shit in the classroom. So, yes. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah. The, she's she just she's trying to force um our main character as they have these exchanges. To think that there—it's not. Stop trying to find meaning. It's yeah. just random, and maybe that's okay. And I think the ending of the book—spoilers um, for those who have—I don't think it matters. <laughs> yeah, but, but the the ending is is it, it, nothing kind of changes, right? It's, it's just kind of ambiguous. Um, the the character is still random. She's like randomly on time. At the end, like she's always like sure what you least expect that she's on time, but that necessarily that doesn't necessarily mean it.
2: <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it is talking back to that Bart's quote about waiting. Yeah. Waiting I mean, connected to love. You, yeah, it can connect. Yeah. <laughs> it is, it is. Or am I just making meaning out of this? <laughs> I mean, you certainly can but. <laughs>
3: But, but, yeah, I think, I think I think that even in the moments where it plays into the, the narrative or the motifs, it might still be random in a different way. So, yeah, I, I, I definitely play around with that and see what
2: I can do. Just for the viewers, there's the Bartz quote that uh, is a refrain, not a refrain, it happens like maybe a couple times throughout the book. And uh, maybe you can read that out to us.
3: Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm going to start a little bit before the quote. You wonder if she ever feels like she is the one waiting. Am I in love? Yes, since I am waiting, the other one never waits. Sometimes I want to play the part of the one who doesn't wait. I try to busy myself elsewhere to arrive late, but I always lose at this game. Whatever I do, I find myself there with nothing to do, punctual, even ahead of time. The lover's fatal identity is precisely this. I am the one who waits. Roland Barthes. A lovers' discourse.
2: Yeah, that's so beautiful because it also connects to the concepts of poetic uh, memory, right? That mm. kind of is like also a nice thread throughout the book.
3: Mm-hmm. I think
2: I think a lot of that is also
3: informed by the kind of uncarved Hong, Hong Kong because there's this sense of longing of this post-colonial state where you're like you're like longing for something that doesn't exist in the past, right? You're you're like so
2: colonized that you're longing for for something that's never there. Oh, that is so interesting. Oh my God. Okay. Actually, you know what? That'll move into my next question. One of the central ideas of Orange seems to be the idea of interpretation and translation, how two Mm -hmm. people can hear the same story and can come to two completely different interpretations. Mm -hmm. In the book, The speaker and his lovers' diverging interpretations seem to showcase a division, a sort of impossible gap that would forever keep them apart. In part, you connect this to the liminality of the space they occupy as transnational people. This is what you said in an interview. So the question is, what about you as a transnational writer? Is the movement between languages, cultures, and continents destabilizing?
3: Mm. Yes, but I think um, um, there is a kind of solidarity you find in being in these diasporic spaces that are constantly kind of changing but there are certainly moments of like disorientation that that you feel and those moments are ones that the character kind of needs or is forced to consider their their identity because they might feel like oh this is a space where i don't belong and i need to kind of reorient myself in a different way to, um, to, to comprehend that. Um, so being, being, I grew up in Hong Kong, but I was born in Vancouver, and then I moved back to Canada when I was in, in, in high school. So I'm, I'm pretty, I'm fluent in Cantonese. I can speak Cantonese well, but my Mandarin is not great. But now I'm working in Shenzhen, and I was actually, I was translating for a Chinese literature class. I was interpreting rather, and in, in Mandarin too, the class was, and then I was, translating it into, into English and I can understand most of the things but it, it felt really strange because I, I realized that what as I'm translating I'm like okay this is not really a language issue um they were talking about like like Chinese Chinese philosophers um, Lao Tzu and uh Zhang and all those people and then it's like the fundamental idea that there's there's not really anything essential is at the core of the, the people who are, who are learning Chinese. They, they can't really comprehend or understand. And I, I'm, I started with like finding parallels with philosophies from like the, the West to do it. And I realized that that doesn't actually really work because, because it, it's not really a language thing. It starts from a, a lot. Of, there's this book called Science by um, Byung-Chun. Han, who's a Korean German philosopher, and he talks about how Chinese philosophy starts with deconstruction. So it's it, it's it's like fundamentally in like a postmodern state. There's no essence, or there's there's none of that, right? So yeah, so, yeah. so these students are struggling with like that idea, and if they don't get that, <laughs> none really, of anything else would make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it becomes incredibly difficult. It's no longer just a, just a language issue. But then I also realized that growing up from in Hong Kong, which which I, I kind of learned this, but I also learned at the same time um, the, the Western ideas. Like my, my, my school in Hong Kong was actually a Christian school, right? Mm-hmm. So so these things being so oppositional were, were taught to me in kind of the same space. And um, I think... If, from four people in Hong Kong who, at that time, right now the, 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 the curriculum is a little different. But um, it's, it's, it's contrasting ideas. is making you fundamentally, in a way, like disoriented. And I feel like because of that, I'm more okay with living in these, like, constantly in transit. And I think my characters kind of reflect that as well um, in
2: the story, in, the, in this book. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of the uh, a lot of the authors and uh, people that you mention also have that same type of how should we put it diasporic subjectivity. Even mm. Wang Kar Wai came to Hong Kong uh, from mainland China and wasn't able to speak English or Cantonese right for a long time, and cites that as a lot of his early inspiration.
3: Mm, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, he also came from I think he came from Shanghai. So he came from one post-colonial space to, to another too. There was very there's a lot going on there. And I think I think a good example of um, that might be the the lantern chapter, the opening of that, where where the two Chinese characters mean concept, but to the character the narrator means something else. Right. Would you like to read that? Yeah. That'd be um, cool. Lanterns and letters. The words koi and li make up the term concept. Koi by itself means approximate, or in general, and li means thought or idea, but it can also mean read or recite. When put together, koi li, to me at least, means approximately an idea, or not quite an idea yet. So, this is an example of like sometimes these words or phrases in in Chinese, or rather I, I think about them in, in Cantonese, they, I know what it means, but when it's broken down and I think about them in English, it means something else. So if this is the way the character kind of thinks, then the character who is a, who's a translator, he might be, he might, he might be constantly feeling like language itself is, is very disorienting and um, it's constantly contextualized by everything else or the moment. So, so I wanted this to be the opening paragraph of this book because um, my characters in this chapter is going to Taiwan and Taiwan to so the two of them is a very interesting space because one Chinese and the other is Japanese yeah. so there's 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 this kind of tension between them they're like yeah. we're going to Taiwan yeah. you're a colonizer <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, and then, and then so so the, so the beginning, she, he, he thinks about
2: jogging to China, but he never could jog to China. So that's... <laughs> um, it, 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 it's fascinating, this idea of, again, I'm going to use that word diasporic subjectivity, where you can be both a quote unquote colonizer, right? Or even part of the colonizing industry, right? Mm-hmm. But also flagged as a, a person who should be hated. Uh, and racist behavior should be kind of like directed towards.
3: Hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, Can I tell a story that happened to me recently? Yes, please. Yeah, so I was, so when I, when I speak Mandarin, I have, I kind of have an accent and my, my, my Chinese name, my character, it has the, the sheng, kind of looks like a Korean name. So, so um, I was on a taxi and I was talking about, Korean movies like two of my two of my colleagues. And then and then the driver when when we were in on the highway, he turned to me and he was like, Are you Korean? And then I was like, No. And then he said, If you're Japanese, I'm gonna kick you off the taxi.
0: Well <laughs> right.
3: <laughs> and, then, and then we're on a highway so I was like I'm not gonna tell you that I grew up in Hong Kong because I'm not gonna know what, I don't know what's gonna happen yeah now, I told him I'm not Japanese and then he actually I told him I'm not Japanese and he still told me that if I was he's was gonna take me kick me off the taxi so it becomes like it's it's not really about me not being Japanese anymore. It's just it's just him needing to say that, right? that yeah. <laughs> he needs to say that. So yeah, and when I when I when I told my partner that who she is actually Japanese, she said, "Good for him." Like, <laughs> <laughs> she's, like she's like, we're we're racist. I'm like. Like so in that moment though, when she said, good for him, I was like, what about me? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. So yeah, yeah, it was it's
2: very interesting. Also happened more than once. (laughs)
3: Yeah.
2: Well, I know I know a lot of um, a lot of my friends would not buy a Japanese car for the life of them. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly those who grew up on mainland China, just right. because the fact of the fact that the Japanese government has never actually apologized for Nan- Nanjing and other kind of atrocities.
3: Yeah, 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 yeah. And, I, and I'm not I, I'm not because that person is from from Dunbei and and they they had they had some genocide so yeah. and, and, and so so yeah I, and and this is just a, a result of that and it's and currently the i i feel like it it it's
2: it happens yeah and, happens. and the weird part about it is that uh while well, the the situation in the kind of the cab that you're talking about here is not quite orientalism it mm-hmm. is the idea of impressing upon another person that kind of an entire cultural baggage that you yeah. have a, a predisposition for or orientalism would be that. And this book actually does talk a lot about these types of orientalist situations that you get into. Or mm. racist, just pure on racist or
3: yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I think or not the... you, but sorry, the speaker. Oh, <laughs> oh no, it's fine.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it does. And yeah and of course, all of these things are really related, right or self-orientalizing or orientalizing other people or it's all a result of like some kind of violence that happened.
2: Mm-hmm. yeah well, and particularly, like the character in the book feels his shadow open up into a hole, right in specific situations where there's this and then it's kind of is like it's almost like a destabilizing position where the character is no longer. Either, Actually, I would like to talk to you about that. I have a little bit of a question on that. So in the story, <laughs> the narrator feels his shadow opening up into a hole. Uh, these situations occur during moments where he's confronted with racist remarks or in the face of Orientalism. But one of the big events is when he um, it occurs upon seeing Métis Atash's Punk Buddha, a gaudy display where the artist bedazzles Buddha statues with gems and contemporizes Buddha with Mohawks. Of course, this German-born artist was inspired to do this after they found spiritual enlightenment on their visit to Bali. Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about Métis Ash's um, Punk Buddha because I looked it up and it is quite an atrocity. Yeah, so that's that's real. It exists. You can find it in Yorkville
3: um, in Toronto. Um, I think it' was still there. Um, a friend of mine actually sent me a news that um, at some point somebody somebody stole
2: one. <laughs> that's <laughs> said, good
3: yeah yeah and i was i was there with a friend um and um the the gallery owner actually told us the story that oh she was enlightened in like valley and, and this happened um and she was she was she was actually like a i think she's from miami and she's been doing this for a while now and um the self-orientalizing not really even i think the bulk buddha is is is, is not it's just appropriating and a lot using like what's wrong unsolved problems of the art industry and putting it into one thing yeah. and then it's like unapologetically um it's like a power move right it's like I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna appropriate a Buddha I'm gonna I'm gonna put these expensive brand names on it I'm gonna bedazzle it out with like gems and like Swarovski crystals or whatever and then it's like I don't I don't give a fuck about you I'm gonna use this to make money and (laughs) it's 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 just it's nothing
2: but like a like a authoritarian move (laughs) it's (laughs) exactly and the weird part about it is it's couched
0: under this idea of enlightenment
3: yeah yeah it's like I'm enlightened now because I know how to how to use you to make
2: money. (laughs) (laughs) That is the capitalist form of enlightenment. (laughs) I've come to the realization.
3: (laughs) (laughs) And the fact that like, Uh, I was with my my friend who was also also East Asian and we go in and then the the people are just introducing this to us. Like it's like a thing that they're supposed to do. And we're like, all right.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I saw you walking on the street. You must be interested in our (laughs) Buddha's. Oh my God. Yeah, like once I I went on a little bit of a rabbit hole kind of just looking at these pieces. What on earth is going on? That is, yeah, it's disturbing. Anyways, I don't want to kind of keep going on that. I just wanted to touch a little bit on it, but uh, it's it's interesting because you see it, but it's interesting. Like, have you seen Once Upon a Time in Hollywood? I haven't, but I, I can't. Have. You have? I what have. You. Yeah. What did you? So I've seen the depictions of Bruce Lee in that, and it mm-hmm. pisses me off so much that I cannot watch that movie, even though I feel like I should contextualize those scenes and whatever, right? Um, and the reason why uh, it pisses me off is because he's a lone Chinese man in Hollywood and he's used as one, as like a prop, right? As a satirical prop. And two, he's used as sort of a, a sort of at the end as a summation for Brad Pitt to kind of like express his white supremacy by, you know, beating beating Bruce Lee up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it feels like, for example, there are so many situations in movies and Hollywood films where the that East Asian character is kind of played off as this sort of tokenistic satirical figure, and you you quote uh, "Lost in translation as that um, as doing that as well. right I was just wondering if you had any thoughts about that.
3: yeah, that was that was weird. <laughs> that was yeah, it's super weird, hey? <laughs> that was weird. <laughs> like why? Why would you like for for a lot of people, not 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 just Asian people, but like a lot of different diasporic communities as well? Back in the time, Bruce Lee was very important, and and um, I mean, Bruce Lee sure had his problems, right? He's he's obviously not a great father. It's probably not the most most open minded person, but but and and of course we recognize that, but but also. Like I even saw in an interview, like Quentin Tarantino kind of knows this. Like Bruce Lee would probably would probably kill Brad Pitt right in, the, in that situation. I'm I'm I, I'm wondering like what, what prompted him to and his excuse was like why not just create a fantasy in which a character can actually beat beat Bruce Lee, and and that that and but but why though why 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 this fantasy? <laughs> yeah why
2: particularly bruce lee right (laughs) yeah yeah and i think it it is this for example one of the reasons why bruce lee was such a great figure right and was such a controversial figure is because Mm -hmm. he's a strong right Mm -hmm. um assertive asian man Mm -hmm. in hollywood at the time right and so it just is and he's beating up basketball players and he's beating up <laughs> and chuck norris and all these people right like uh kind of quintessential american folklorish figures right mm. so it, it just feels very very odd to me um mm. that that would happen
3: it's weird that that movie came out like just a few years ago right and maybe yeah, Lost in Translation came out, I don't know how like like 10, 15 a long, longer time ago. I, I forget, like maybe even longer, like closer to 20 years ago, maybe. The fact that we're still we're still we're still doing that is is kind of strange. And it, yeah. Shang-Chi is also weird. I've never actually seen it, but um Yeah, I'm hesitating towards it. I'm really yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i mean they they i know they tried to solve some problems by by casting tony as like like i think he was supposed to be fu manchu
2: but then he's supposed to be a fu manchu it's just it's so odd right and but, but i do like for example that they're bringing back the um wujiai is that correct how you say that Ujie. Ujie. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I do like the idea of bringing back that martial arts kind of narrative, right? Mm-hmm. Centralized. I think, like, for example, Wong Kar Wai kind of yeah. came back to that same type of process. of let's go bring back the wuxia. Wuxia? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, And, and yeah, in,
3: like, like Grand Masters or like Ashes of Time, like, it's not really fighting, right? It's just <laughs> dancing. You're watching... You're watching. <laughs> that's choreographed for like two
2: hours <laughs> yeah exactly oh and it's so good <laughs> like grandmaster and it man and these ones are just like yeah. wonderful kind of and they, a lot of them actually do talk about that colonialist aspect it's like embedded within it that sort of resistance to the colonialist and the the oppressive weight of it
3: yeah and it's also about the because the 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 it's, it's it's during the war, and these people are are switching different classes, right? Their class status like constantly changes, and then and then what what it means for them to be able to do these 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 martial arts it's 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 something that is the only thing that doesn't change yeah. for the characters, right? It's yeah yeah yeah.
2: I I highly doubt Shang-Chi would be doing that. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have two more questions for you. Hmm. In mm-hmm. interviews, he said that you would like to look more at the implications of AI and tech metaphors. Yeah. Uh, in the published piece for Filling Station that we talked about recently, previously, there's this wonderful line that goes, if someone uploads my consciousness to a machine, I would prefer to be a Roomba. My purpose would be clear to clean. This is fascinating because it showcases the desire for simplicity, a place where identity is potentially fixed. I suppose that's sort of the charm of a character even like Harold Lee in Orange, right? His identity is kind of simplistic and fixed, right? And there's not that much complexity, or not that much complexity to it, but there is and there isn't, right? Um, but why do you feel that the intangibleness of identity formation is such a fixation for you in your writing?
3: Yeah, no, I think that's a great question, thank you. I think I think my characters, want that and this also goes back to to having grown up in hong kong right you want you want there to be some kind of stability and there needs to be we're told that there needs to be stability because this is a financial hub right you need stability in order for there to be money circulating it through your 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 city and um and and china is kind of trying to expand that let's make let's make macau and shenzhen where i am right now like a larger kind of financial hub to be like a bay area and there's even talks like at the at the shenzhen bay they wanted to they want to connect um in, uh, a residential neighborhood in Hong Kong right now. The chief executive, who is like our mayor of Hong Kong, is called the chief executive of Hong Kong, is
0: is, is proposing yeah. right.
3: So so we have these the, the idea in living and having grown up in spaces where there's so much effort put into trying to maintain a kind of stability where and in which all the stability is all all pretense right it's gonna it's so unstable it's gonna collapse (laughs) anytime in a way like a pandemic Hong Kong is not even not even open yet I've been back for a while I've never even been there the bridge has been empty right there are so many factors that that destabilizes Hong Kong but um but I think for a lot of post-colonial spaces, like Shanghai is also kind of a financial hub. Like there's no point of the, of the central government using, trying to like like, like control it in a very like, like, what do I say this in a safe way? <laughs> to, to,
2: <laughs>
3: right. Yeah, so for Hong Kong and, uh, and and Shanghai and and even to an extend Shenzhen and Macau, um, they're, they ha- kind of have their own financial status because well, for Shenzhen because it's in the south and because of its history of what, what kind of industry it it has been, but right now it's also the headquarters of a lot of like tech companies, and so there's certainly an advantage for 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 um, those who are in charge to let it do what it's currently doing. Um, so to take advantage of the situation of hong kong and macau's kind of post-colonial status that doesn't need to be they, they don't really need to change that the 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 purpose of that can be to use it to continue to make money through its openness and i'm doing quotes here um to to um other other countries in terms of like free market Kind of economics. So, so in this sense, um, the kind of post-colonial state is being being taken advantage of for this purpose, and for people who who live there, a lot of them and their identity, especially the stereotype of people in Shenzhen is like you move to Shenzhen to make to make money to work for Huawei or Tencent for for, and all their headquarters are here. So this is the kind of identity and the idea of stability. Um, it's something that we're taught to value because in these spaces, um, you, you need that in order to, to maintain um, the status of what it is, which is a tech slash finance hub. Right. Yeah, so for my for my for my characters who are often not not people who work in tech, nor are they people who work in finance, but maybe when they see a character like Harold, Harold Lee who is, they long for for that identity because they want to be like, okay, I'm from these places, I should be like that, but in reality, they can't be because they're not. <laughs> they're, they're too aware of that status. Also, they don't have the ability to, as often, often the case of my characters. So, so when, when my narrator in the, in the piece, um, in July, we were all children, I think about the idea of if their consciousness would be uploaded to, to a machine, they would, they would want to be a Roomba and their purpose will be clear, Is because they're, they're having been, been been shaped by living in these financial and technological hubs um they they want they kind of feel like in order to contribute to that uh, by the fact that they can't is that to to have a stable
2: identity right it's almost like you know uh google's alpha zero and alpha go and these types of engines that are kind of like play games like play chess engine and so it's interesting how, for example, uh, Alpha Zero um, and AlphaGo, they're lauded for the ability to play like, human-like moves, right? <laughs> but they're not human. And the interesting part is that you're moving in this opposite direction of saying, that's the, the gravitation towards it is almost like, I want to get human-like, but not be human.
3: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, because it's all based on, like, the data is just based on information, right? It's not right. really, yeah, it's it's human, it's human-like, but what is missing, we don't actually, I, I, I mean, my character actually
2: doesn't know, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wonderful. Okay, this is my last question. Uh, right. and thank you so much for everything. This has been really, really wonderful conversation. Oh, thank um, you. So... In a metafictional moment in the novel mm-hmm. the narrator comments on the book he is writing quote unquote book that he's writing as autofiction experimentalism there is a bevy of terms around what we call these types of texts right biotext autoethnography i think audrey lord also calls her book zambi biomythography right is this book more autofiction or metafiction do you think and what drew you to that form and maybe you can give us a little bit of a definition of what you mean by that yeah. I I think it's a little bit auto fiction
3: in, in, the, in the sense like I've been to all of the places I write about. And um certainly the conversations are not real. Like I mean, they're I don't I don't remember folk tales off the top of my head that I can't do you know, all <laughs> <laughs> Just so pull them it. up at the drop of a hat. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's that's certainly made up. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but but I think how 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 it feels like to be a transnational Asian person to be in those places places that sense. That sense of your belonging or not belonging is it, certainly very real. And I don't think a lot of the that that kind of feeling I can I can make up. Um, um the the scene that the clown in Prague, there's a clown in Prague for, for the listeners. Um in the in the ending chapter, the characters are in Prague, and the clown shows up to the narrator, goes like Kodishiwa, can I do you want to stab me? And then, and and that actually happened. Um, I was walking around in Prague, and a clown asked if I wanted to stab him. (laughs) (laughs) Now, the question is did you stab him? (laughs) <laughs> the, the, I, I did not in the in in real life I did not stab the clown ah, no. and now I wish because I think the auto fiction comes in because at, when I was writing this I had I wish that I had stabbed the clown
2: wow. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> because for the narrator it's so interesting because this is, is a, a moment of kind of like Revelation for him because it's he says that the clown did more for him than Jesus Christ did, right? <laughs> and I just thought that that was such a wonderful line,
3: <laughs> yeah. That's that's oh, that's so true, yeah. So, I think that's so. At that moment, I was I, when I was writing about that, I was like, maybe I should have stabbed the clown. And then, this is maybe this is also uh, responding to what you had talked about, Mark, about how 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 I can define the two maybe 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 auto fiction is like what I picked up um in past moments that I wish I could have made better so I don't know
2: if that answers your question at all oh no that's a a great answer yeah yeah. because I think it showcases the idea that and correct me if I'm wrong it's this idea that it's an amalgamation of our lived experiences and also our wished experiences and also fantastical experiences that would represent the feelings of mul- in the moments. Is that correct?
3: Yeah, I think so. And I feel like it also says something about, about like ri- writing anything, right? Um, forget the, the quote from Maggie Nose's new book on freedom. She talks about how um, even if you're trying to write about the now, you end up writing about the not now. Yeah. So, as we're writing about the present, it's also about like how time works. And writing is, is is not really about the time of writing. It's an ex- it's and, like a con- an expansion of that. So when we're thinking about writing, like autofiction or bi- bi- auto- auto- bio bio bio
2: fiction, is that there
3: is like
2: biofiction, biotext. There is biomythography. There is so many. Uh, bio- yeah. Yeah. It's, it's often about. It's often
3: about what the writing can do with what you what you're basing it off of so so in in that sense and especially for this text i'm trying to make meaning out of the ambiguity of experiencing these moments of disorientation or this moments these mom- yeah, these moments of disorientation so by contextualizing it through writing through relating it to other things who who would also who might that might be equally disorienting but but in a weird way contextualizing making meaning out of these moments, I think, is how my approach to
2: writing is in general. Fantastic. That's that's a fantastic end, I think, for this podcast. Thank you so, so much, Shun King. Your book, You Are Eating an Orange, You Are Naked it is wonderful. Fantastic. Everybody should go out and grab it.
1: you enjoyed this interview with Sean King by Mark Herman Lynch. I'm Shazia Hafiz Ramji and you've been listening to TIA House Talks. We recognise the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Programme and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed, as well as the guidance of Mark Stokel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Yin Yu, Ryan Stern, Paul Mounier, Mark Herman Lynch, Mahmoud Ababneh, and myself. Thanks for listening.